The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. If you've been with us, you know that we're working through the book of Hebrews in our morning series, and we've arrived at the second half of chapter 6 this morning. Just as a, a brief review, as you're thinking back, we've heard from Hebrews that Jesus is superior or better than anything else. We've heard that Jesus is better than angels, that Jesus is a better servant than Moses, who offers a better rest than Joshua, who's a better high priest than those who have gone before. And so the encouragement, therefore, to the church is hold fast and draw near to Christ and do not abandon the great salvation he has to offer. But if you hear last week, you know that in the middle of his argument, the author of Hebrews just calls a timeout because of his concern that the church is not going to be able to discern the importance of Jesus because they've become dull of hearing or spiritually sluggish. And we saw last week that the author paused his whole argument in order to address his concern for the church head on. And as we're working through chapter 6, what we're going to see is that, if you want to use the phrase, the author is going to apply both the carrot and the stick. He's going to give both the warning but also the attractive promises of Christ. And so last week we focused on the warning that spiritual laziness can lead to abandoning Christ and abandoning Christ leads to judgment. Now this week, beginning in verse 13, we're going to focus on the strength of God's promises and all that are offered to us in Christ. So would you follow with me as we read beginning in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your words that you have given your people. We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us and draw us near to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
the key theme of these verses are God's promises. As you think about promises, maybe take a minute to think about some of the promises we make and receive. As parents, we promise that our kids can have ice cream if they eat their vegetables. Maybe as siblings, we promise that our brother can go first in line if he lets us use the toy we want to play with now. As consumers, we're promised things all the time. We're guaranteed better skin complexion if we just try this product. We're guaranteed better cell reception if we switch services. Promises are made all the time, and promises are fine, but it doesn't take us very long to figure out that the promise isn't actually what's all that important. It's the reliability of the person making the promise that really matters. This was emphasized to me when I heard an elementary school boy, not one from our church, He responded with zero enthusiasm when his dad promised or said, hey, why don't we get ice cream together this week? But as the boy put it, he always says things like that and it just never works out. Maybe you think of a brochure, a 1910 brochure that was handed out widely around uh, England particularly, advertising a new ocean liner which said this ship is designed to be completely unsinkable. Well, that of course was a brochure for the Titanic And we found out that this promise was more than the one promising could actually guarantee. Well, the author of Hebrews has just urged the readers in verse 12, if you look back at verse 12 that we talked about last week, he urged them not to be sluggish, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises that God has made to his people. Now, maybe the first question that comes into your mind is, well, God's made a lot of promises. When it says the promises, what exactly is this passage referring to? Which promises of God will we inherit? And the promises, of course, refer to a long line of God's promises, a long line of promises that God has made to his people, all of which point toward and lead to the great promise of rescue from sin, of salvation from death of redemption, forgiveness, and being brought back once again into the presence of God forever. The promises would include God's promise to Adam and Eve that one day an offspring would be born that would crush the head of the serpent. The promises would include God's promise to Abraham that he would have a son despite being old and have passed the age to bear one. And that son would lead to many offspring, as many as the stars in the sky, who would inherit a promised land And ultimately, that through Abraham's descendants would come one who would be a blessing to all nations of the earth. It would include God's promise to David that one of his descendants, one of his sons, would rule God's people on God's throne forever. It would include God's promise to make a new covenant with his people and to write his law on their hearts, to turn their hearts back to him and to be their God forever. It would include God's promise to redeem Israel and Jacob and bring them back to himself. But also God's promise that he would send his servant who would be a light to the Gentiles so that his salvation would go to the very ends of the earth to all who put their faith in him. This is the promises that are offered. And these are life-altering promises. These are promises that are so good and so glorious that getting them is worth anything and everything. They offer forgiveness of sin, salvation from death, peace with God, and the joy of dwelling with him forever. But the question 
The question, perhaps, in the minds of those reading this letter, the question the author wants to address is this. How confident can we be in these promises? When suffering hits instead of blessing, when long delay comes instead of immediate fulfillment, when other things appear more attractive or other explanations for life or for for godliness are given, are God's promises worth holding on to in faith and in patience? Well, it all depends on the reliability of the one making the promise. And so the author of Hebrews in this passage gives us three reasons why God's promises are absolutely reliable and that we can stake our lives on his word no matter what. So follow with me and and look at these three reasons that the author gives. The first comes in verses 13 through 15. Look at, at these verses. And here the author gives us a case study. And you and I probably know that one good reason to trust someone is when they've shown themselves faithful in the past. And so here the author reminds us that God made a promise to Abraham, and when Abraham responded with faith and patience, he obtained the promise. God was faithful to the promise he made. In verse 14, uh, the author of Hebrews quotes from Genesis twenty-two sixteen, when God swears by himself that he will bless Abraham. He will multiply his offspring. He will bless all the nations of the earth through him. But this promise is a, is a culminating promise, really. It comes back to a promise that's been made to Abraham several times, starting back in Genesis chapter 12, when, when God called Abraham out of Haran and said, walk after me, follow me, and I will give you offspring, a promised land, and all nations will be blessed in you. Now, we can look back and say, God fulfilled that promise. And maybe we just check a box. But I want you to remember how exactly God kept that promise and what that looked like for Abraham. Because Abraham didn't get the promise and then the next day or week or month he got the fulfillment. Remember, Abraham received this promise at age 75 when he had no children. Now without children at age 75... This is a big promise to believe in, but Abraham had faith. But then, of course, 25 years passed. 25 years passed. And I want to just think about this for a second. Think about what you were doing 25 years ago. Now, for a number of you, the answer is, well, I didn't exist. For others of you, you might remember it was 1994. For me, I was nine years old. I was deep playing with Legos and dressing up as an Indian with my teepee in the backyard. A lot has happened in 25 years. Now imagine that you were made a promise 25 years ago and have been waiting for its fulfillment for 25 years. But of course, after 25 years now, Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90 and they're no longer able to have children. And so the question is, can I still trust in God's promise? But you know the story. God miraculously fulfills his promise and gives Abraham a son, Isaac, fulfilling this promise. But of course, by the time we get to the verse the author of Hebrews is is quoting, there's an added element. Because after receiving Isaac, God then calls Abraham to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac, on an altar. And so you think, Abraham, but God, doesn't this make your promise impossible? Can I still trust your promise? Abraham 
believes with faith and patience. And again, God fulfills his promise, rescuing Isaac. And so that after his 25 years plus further years with with Isaac, after his patient faith, Abraham did obtain the promise. Isaac grows up and is married, has children, and God's promise begins to grow. And we see that though it didn't look like it at times, God was perfectly reliable and perfectly fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And so Hebrews is here reminding us of two things. One, he's reminding us of this call to patient faith, to imitate Abraham's patient faith. But then he shows us, of course, that God was faithful to his promise. Even though it looked doubtful to a casual observer, God was clearly trustworthy, fulfilling his promise. And that's a good reason to stake our lives on the promises of God. So that's the case study. That's the first reason the author gives us. But secondly, look at verses 16 to 18. This is the second reason he gives us. And here, the author shows us that God is reliable by appealing to the character of God to show us that he will do what he has promised. Verse 16 argues that God uses an oath to back up his promise and that an oath is used to guarantee or give final confirmation for something. Now, of course, God didn't need to use an oath. God doesn't need to back up his word with a promise. But he does so anyway, and verse 17 tells us why. God desired to show his people, the heirs of his promise, how confident they could be in his word. He didn't need to swear, but he wants to give encouragement to his people to trust him. His goal was to give greater assurance to his people to trust his word. And so we here have God, who cannot lie and who cannot change, giving a double assurance. One, making a promise, and he cannot lie and cannot change. And two, swearing an oath to confirm it, and he cannot lie and he cannot change. And so we have these two unchangeable statements that God gives his people so that we would have strong confidence and encouragement to trust in him. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. Because we probably all know someone we feel safe trusting. There's probably someone in all of our lives that we say, yes, I would trust that person. But no matter how safe we feel trusting them, no matter how much we rely on them, even the most trustworthy person is still finite. Things are still outside of their control. We say, I will be there at this time, but we can't anticipate the accident on Route 30. We say we're going to do something, but we're not perfect and we fail. But God's character... God's very character, his very existence as the eternal, holy, almighty God demands and guarantees that when he says something, he will do it. He will keep his promises. That's what God told us in in Numbers 23 through Balaam when he said, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? No, because this is who God is. His very character as the holy, eternal, perfect, almighty God guarantees that he will do what he says. And so we can have absolute confidence in God's promise of salvation because of who he is. His very person and character guarantees it. Before we move on, I just want you to notice something very small, perhaps subtle, but I think it is so comforting and encouraging. Notice here in Hebrews God, uh, the author is talking about God's promise to Abraham. And so when he says that he gives both a promise and an oath to give uh, a convincing 
proof and guarantee of his promise, we might think, well, God made his promise and then he took the oath in order to assure Abraham that his promise would come true. And that's certainly true. But will you notice verses 17 and 18? Do you notice what the author says? He says that God made his promise and his oath in order to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. And then in verse 18, he says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, God made his promise and then swore the oath not just to assure Abraham, but for our sake, for the sake of all who would rely on his name. So that any one of us, whether it's a first century Hebrew Christian, whether it's you, whether it's me, or any who rely on God, can come to God's word and hear his promise and hear his oath and flee to him for refuge and have a strong and convincing proof that he will fulfill his promises and do what he has said. This is the rock-solid confidence that God's word gives those who have come to trust in him. Well, third, if that is not enough, we have a third and final reason that we can trust God's promise and comes in verses 19 and 20. Here we find out that we have a hope, a strong hope, an anchor of the soul kind of hope that we can hold on to. And part of this goes back to what the word hope means. Because when we hear the word hope, we often mean something we wish to be true, like I hope my pussy willow tree survives. Now, I say that because I received a number of texts and emails and a number of people asking me after last week, you gave this analogy, but did your pussy willow tree survive? And so I'm happy to report that I found four new shoots of branches this week. I think it has survived. But the point is, when we use the word hope, we're not expressing something here that we wish. That's not how the author of Hebrews is using hope. Here, our hope is sure and steadfast like an anchor of our soul. And you know what an anchor is, right? An anchor is made out of galvanized steel. It is solid and it is strong and it is unbreakable. It hooks to the bottom of the sea or to the rock and holds on and cannot be moved so that whatever forces might beat against it, the anchor holds steady. And here we're told that our hope in Jesus Christ is an anchor for our souls. Well, why? How is our hope in Jesus Christ like an anchor? Well, we're told two things. First, Jesus has already entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, remember, that's um, giving us the analogy of the tabernacle. Behind the curtain here is the Holy of Holies. It's talking about being in the very presence of God. Jesus has entered here into the very presence of God, and he's done so as a forerunner on our behalf and also as a high priest forever on our behalf. And so here we have Jesus who's entered on our behalf as forerunner and high priest. Remember what these words mean. The forerunner is someone who would go ahead of you. He would pave the way. He would go and make things ready. And so that when we are united with him and joined with him, when we arrive, he has already prepared the place and the presence of God for us. And how does he do it? He does it as a high priest. Well, what does the high priest do? The high priest goes and makes atonement for our sins, offering blood sacrifice to cover our sins and to restore our relationship with God to to represent us before him. This is the Jesus we have in the presence of God. And so in this passage, we have three reasons why God's promises are absolutely reliable. And notice how each one sort of ups the ante. 
Each one is, is sort of even more strong and solid than the one before. We start with the case study. God has shown us his faithfulness, keeping his promises to Abraham. But then if that's not enough, consider even more. God's very character assures us that he cannot lie. And he gave us both a promise and an oath to doubly assure us of his trustworthiness that we can rely on him. And if that's not enough, above all, God has already fulfilled his promise for us in the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus has already accomplished our hope. He's already entered God's presence on our behalf. He's already made atonement for our sins so that we know with utmost confidence that we can join him there if we hold fast to him. These are the strong anchors of the soul that this passage offers us. Well, God's promises give us this absolute hope, this kind of confidence in God's promises. But this kind of confidence in God's promises is going to impact our lives on a daily basis. And as we think about how do we live in light of the assurance of God's promises, I want to ask three questions. Three questions to help us live and respond according to what God tells us here. And the first question is a very short question. It's a very simple question. And that is this. If God's promises are guaranteed and cannot change, what have you decided about what God has said in the book of Hebrews? See, Hebrews has warned us that today, if you hear God's voice and you harden your heart, if your heart is like land that is soaked with the rain of God's word, but instead of producing fruit, produces thorns and thistles, if our heart responds to God's word in unbelief and disobedience, and we need to know that Jesus will return, that Jesus is the one God has put on the judgment throne, and there is no hope but judgment if we harden our hearts in the face of God's word. But on the flip side, if you come to Jesus Christ in faith, if you stake your life on him, putting your trust in him, then you're offered a sure and a steadfast anchor for your soul because Jesus has already entered God's presence on your behalf. He's made atonement for your sins. He's prepared the way as a forerunner for you. And if you are united to him, you have the strongest confidence and assurance of salvation and welcome into God's presence. So what have you decided? What will you do as you hear God's word today? Second question is this. On a daily basis, you and I make decisions in life based on what we believe is the most reliable thing the most reliable guide for us. In this passage, we're told that God's words and God's promises are the most reliable guide for our life and our decisions. But what do we do? How do we make our decisions? Well, you consider it historically for several centuries, centuries that are now known as the Enlightenment, our reason or our logic or our minds were considered the most reliable guide for belief and decisions. And maybe you would listen to God's word or revelation. Maybe you would listen to your emotions and consider what you're feeling. But for them, what you think, your logic and reason was the most reliable guide to make decisions on. Well, in our culture today, your own sense of what is right, your own sense of what brings peace and satisfaction or seems to fit and give you a, a sense of what is normal is the most reliable guide for how to act. I was re reading an article from Psychology Today from 2017 this week. And this article asks the question, how do you know what is most important or how do you make the most important decisions in your life? And it gave several pieces of advice. First, 
determine what you value most in life. Second, figure out what commitments are most important to you. Third, evaluate which people are important to you. And fourth, make sure to spend time alone expressing your creativity and developing yourself. You see what's being offered us here. Your sense of what is right is the best guide to what is most important. Perhaps we could put it the way E.E. Cummings put it when he succinctly said, trust your heart if the seas are on fire. That's our culture's guide, our most reliable guide. But see, on a daily basis, our logic and our hearts are going to find themselves at odds with God's word. It's going to happen for you. It's going to happen for me this week. And so we have to know what is our most reliable guide. I love how Jackie Hill Perry put it. Jackie Hill Perry is a faithful follower of Christ who's written and spoken about her struggle to understand her same-sex attractions as a follower of Christ. And she nails the core issue in her letter, love letter to a lesbian. Here's what she says. She says, you see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiments. God's word says it's sinful, but your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable. Your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see that there is a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels? And this doesn't have to just be on a hot button issue. This is the conflict in our hearts on a daily basis. For you, perhaps it is a conflict over sin. Perhaps it's conflict over sexual sin or pornography or crossing biblical lines in dating that feel right and appropriate but are in conflict with God's word. Perhaps, perhaps it comes to obeying your parents where you feel like what your parents are asking you to do just doesn't fit, it's out of touch. And yet what does God's word call us to do? Maybe it's a matter of fear and anxiety and despair. I'm not talking perhaps about mental illness here, but you know how for, on a daily basis, so many times we face the challenge to give ourselves over to fear and an anxiety and worry and despair. And we have to face the question of what does our heart feel, but what does God's word say? Maybe, it's, maybe it comes to us in the face of difficulty and delay as we know what God's word says, but it just doesn't feel like it's true in our lives right now. In every one of these cases, the key question that confronts our heart is whether God's words and God's promises are more reliable or our thoughts and desires and sense of life are more reliable. It's something we're going to have to decide this week and real decisions in our lives. And according to Hebrews 6, God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his word. His character guarantees that his words are true and unchangeable. And so this passage calls us to stake our lives on God's word as the most reliable guide to our beliefs and our decisions. This is a practical, daily application of this passage that we are called to make this week. Well, finally... The third question is this. Yes, there are daily decisions that God's words impact. God's reliability impacts these daily decisions. If we have a strong anchor for a soul, the third question is this. Will we cling to that anchor in the face of winds and waves that threaten to overwhelm us? Because 
we might be willing to acknowledge that this impacts our daily decisions, but there are some times in life that threaten to overwhelm us, that seem too great for us. And so the question is, will we hold to Christ in those times? Because if we're honest, if we're honest, there are times in life that seem too overwhelming to contemplate. And we wonder whether we can really hold on to Christ in those times. This past week, I finished reading When Breath Becomes Air, a memoir of Paul Kalanithi. This is a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list, so maybe some of you read it. Kalanithi was a rising star in the realms of neurosurgery and neuroscience. He was within 10 months or so of graduating and finishing his over-decade-long training at Yale and Stanford in both neurosurgery and neuroscience. He was told by one of his supervisors, he said, Paul, you're about to graduate and you need to know that when you do, you will immediately become the top candidate for any job you decide to apply for. And within weeks of that statement, Paul Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He describes it this way. He said, instead of being the pastoral figure aiding a life transition through neurosurgery, I found myself the sheep, lost and confused. He says, see, severe illness isn't life-altering. It's life-shattering. And many of you know this. Many of you know these confrontations with death and grief and loss. And so the question for us is, is this strong anchor of our souls able to hold in these times? What of God's promises in times of suffering that overwhelm me that I don't feel like I can handle? Well, Hebrews chapter 6 assures us It calls us. It tells us that the anchor of Jesus holds. In fact, it tells us that the anchor of Jesus holds especially in times like this. Not not just, yes, it still holds, but especially in times like this. Because Jesus isn't just a philosophy or an approach to life. He's not someone who can handle small things and make life uh, feel better. Jesus has already entered the presence of God beyond this life. Jesus is an anchor that is rooted in eternity in the presence of God beyond the circumstances of this life. Jesus is an anchor gripping the throne of God itself, having covered the sins of his people. And so we find out that Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul that is greater than the winds and waves of this life and that our hope is strikingly secure in him precisely when the winds and the waves of this life seem most overwhelming. In our youth group, we have a tradition that on the last youth group of the year, we give any graduating seniors the opportunity to give a testimony of something that God has taught them or done in their lives over their time in high school. And so two weeks ago, uh, we had our final youth group and we offered this opportunity. And one of our graduating seniors stood up and, and detailed a half a dozen significant griefs and challenges she's faced in this past year. But she concluded, she said, I've learned that God is faithful no matter what happens. He is an anchor for my life. And even when the winds and waves are so strong that it feels like the anchor has actually given way, it hasn't. He is still with us, and he will carry me through. Amen. Well said. Let me conclude with this. Hebrews has called us to hold fast to Christ 
in patient faith. But maybe we say patient faith. I don't feel capable of this kind of patient faith through 25 years of seeming impossibility, through difficulty that threatens to overwhelm me. But will you notice that patient faith is not a virtue that we have to to strive for and accomplish on our own? Patient faith is the result. Patient faith is the flower that blossoms in our life when we have decided that God's word and God's promises are the most reliable thing and the most important thing to stake our lives on. If God's word and God's promises are the sure anchor for our soul, then patient faith is the result the flower that blooms from that decision. And so, brothers and sisters, God has shown himself faithful. God's character guarantees he will be true and faithful. And Jesus has accomplished the hope that God promised, securing our souls immovably in the presence of God forever with great joy. Will you come and will you rest on this great Savior and his unchangeable, unbreakable promises? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, which you have given us in your word and in your promises is a solid rock and unshakable foundation. And what you have given us in Jesus Christ is a sure anchor for the soul, a promise that lasts and is rooted in eternity. I thank you for this comfort. We praise you for what you have done. We pray that our hearts would be stirred both to lean heavily on you and to glorify you with all our hearts and our voices and our lives. And we pray this to the great glory of your name. Amen.